you've got your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. I want to preach out of these three vignettes tonight. The notes are a little bit more detailed. If you want to download those, you can. You can get those off of our website. We put our notes, there's a PDF of our notes every single week on our website. We know sometimes we cover more textual ground if you're a note taker than what you can keep up with. And so uh, we, we put those out there. All the scripture references and things like that will be there too. But I want to preach out of these three vignettes. We're doing this series, Emmanuel, God with us, or you, and this question, are you, meaning that are you living an, an incarnational life? Are you, are you being tangibly present with other people in the way that Jesus chose to be tangibly present with us? We, we believe in the incarnation of Christ, but do we realize that his incarnation is also an example for us to follow? So I'm going to preach out of these three Three vignettes. The one is through Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus to the temple soon after he was born, and where he has a, an encounter. Their family has an encounter with both Simeon and Anna. And then I'm going to shift. I'm going to pivot to the Magi, and then there's going to we're going to use that one vignette for for two purposes. For two purposes. Somebody say your service. Your service. Luke chapter two, beginning in verse 25 reads this way, at that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was, a righteous and dev- he was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now that day the Spirit led him to the temple, so when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. Now you have to understand, the temple was like malls used to be before COVID at Christmas, right? If, if you've ever waited to the last minute to go do your shopping and you're walking through, it's, it's just packed with people. This is what the temple was like on a daily basis. People from all the world were always coming there to see it. Jewish people were always there practicing the Mosaic law. It was a crowded place. Simeon was there and he took the child into his arms and praised God saying, so it, it's miraculous, right, that, that he has this vision, that this promise from the Holy Spirit was given to him but, but I want you to understand how much of a, there would have been oh, thousands of children there, and the Holy Spirit leads him to just this one. Simeon was there, and he took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, now we can just say this is a miracle unto itself. If you are a mom, you're not likely giving up your newborn child to a stranger. Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. I have seen your salvation which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Jesus' parents, right, this is Mary and Joseph, were amazed at what was being said about him, even though they already knew he was special, even though angels had visited both Mary and Joseph to tell them that they were going to be the parents of the Messiah. Mary already knows that she's given birth to a child, even though she's never been with a man. Now you have to understand, if you're putting it in the timeline, the shepherds have already come. What David was talking about, that exhortation that he gave to us, so powerful, that's in the timeline. That's already happened. The shepherds have already found them in the manger, in Bethlehem. 
They know something incredible is playing out, and they were in the middle of it, that their son might very well be the savior of the world. And here's someone else coming to them, a stranger, finding them in a crowd and making these declarations over their child. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, this baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Now, if that wasn't enough, Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. Now, she was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband had died when they had been married only seven years, and then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. Come on. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. And when Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. And there the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. How incredible. Powerful. One of the overlooked parts, right, of the Christmas narrative and the Christmas story. I share that with you because sometimes... In texts like this that are so dramatic, so, sometimes we, we, we miss the subtleties. Part of that's what, what David was talking about, right? How the glory of God can be found in the simplest of places. I think the fact that all of this took place in the temple courts was intentional and is supposed to be part of the prophetic imagery that teaches us about incarnational living. See, because in this temple that Herod had built was, was, was absolutely incredible. The size of it, the extravagance of it. But one of the things that we see when we look at the layout of this temple is that they did not build it in the right way. And the reason why they did not build it in the right way is because they had an idea of what they wanted it to look like that didn't quite fit God's idea of what it was supposed to look like. And we know what God's idea of what the temple was supposed to look like in its layout, where everything was supposed to be positioned, because in the book of Ezekiel, we have this incredible vision that God gives to the nation of Israel of the exact way that the temple was supposed to be built, laid out, how it was supposed to be oriented, the, 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 the utensils, all the decorations, architecturally the sizes, everything. God gave them supernaturally through Israel this incredible plan, but when it came time to build this temple, they followed their own inclinations. Some things didn't quite it the way that they wanted it to. So they would move it a little bit here, or they were to adjust it a little bit there. Maybe it's the same way if, if you're going to have a house built and an architecture, an architect presents you with this, with this drawing, or you go through a model home, and then you get to customize it, right, to accommodate. Can we use that word? Your needs. How, how many of you know God's not there to accommodate our preferences, especially when it violates the prophetic vision that it's supposed to have. See, because one of the things about Herod's temple is that the altar 
was in the wrong place because it didn't fit his creative design. I want you to think about these steps right here as the steps that are leading up into the temple itself. And this would be the holy place. And if we were to go up these steps, you can think of behind that curtain as being the holiest of holies. And we know that there was an actual curtain that separated those two because when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the veil that separated that was split from top to bottom, right? It was an imagery of, of, of the Spirit of God. Now had access to us and we had access to the Spirit of God, just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And then if you can think of this middle aisle right out here towards the front, there was supposed to be an altar that was in perfect alignment with these steps, which was in perfect alignment with these, this veil and that place where the glory of God dwelt. And the reason why that altar was supposed to be perfectly right there was because it is the sacrifice that makes it possible for people to be in the presence of God. But Herod, it didn't fit. And so it was over here where the reeds are sitting. The altar was off to the side because it didn't fit Herod's creative ideals. And what happens is when you move that, you are removing the significance of Jesus' death and the role that that played in giving us access to the presence of God. Now, why am I sharing that with you? Because if the sacrifice of your service is just doing what is convenient for you, just what you can make fit into your life, then that's not the right layout for incarnational living. I'm sharing all of that with you in great detail because for, for some of us, that's how we live. See, when we gather on Saturday nights and people are serving, are they meeting a practical need? They are. But more importantly, their service is supposed to be a prophetic image of Jesus having died on the cross and serving humanity, making it possible for us to be reconciled with God. See, so when you come into church and you see someone with a blue shirt, the Holy Spirit's whispering to you, they're serving you in the same way that Jesus served you by dying on the cross. When you're dropping your kids off in the nursery, it creates an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to whisper to you, these people that are back here, they're serving you in the same way that Jesus served you by giving his life as a sacrifice for your sins. Our lives and the service that we render, the sacrifice we make, this is part of what Paul's talking about in Romans 12 when he says that we're supposed to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We're supposed to live our lives in service to one another, not just to meet each other's needs, but because we're supposed to be a prophetic picture, a living picture of the sacrifice of Christ. But how many of us, we live our lives like Herod's temple instead of Ezekiel's vision? Where serving in the way that we're supposed to, serving in the way that we should, we, we don't do it as much as we should or with the frequency that we should or in the places that we should because it's not accommodating to us. Part of serving in our local church is about serving one another, but it's about being a picture of Jesus laying his life down for you and I. The sacrifice of our service to others is supposed to point people to the sacrifice of Jesus' service to all of humanity. What is the testimony 
of the sacrifice of your service saying to the world? What is the testimony of the sacrifice of your service saying to the world? Part of the reason why I'm preaching this, and I'm going to do the other two that are coming, is, and is what we've been talking about in this series about incarnational living, is we, we cannot allow COVID to secularize our Christianity. We can't do it. We're supposed to be tangibly present with one another. Are there exceptions? Yes. I'm not going to go through those again. You can listen to the podcast two weeks ago. There are exceptions. But for too many people, they're not tangibly present because it's inconvenient. Are, are, is your life a picture of Herod's temple or is it a picture of Ezekiel's vision? God's plan for your life is not just to be a part of a local church, it's to serve those people that are in your local church because they're your spiritual family. And one of the reasons why your life is supposed to serve other people in the local church is that your, the altar of your life is supposed to be a living sacrifice that the Holy Spirit can point people to you and say, just as they serve you, Jesus has died for you. Come on. I want my life, how I serve other people, not because it's convenient, not because it's easy. I want to live an incarnational life. I want to be tangibly present with other people. And I want my, my, my life to be a life that the Holy Spirit can point to and help others see Jesus through me in the way that I live. And I hope you do too through your service. Somebody say your worship. Your worship. This is out of Matthew 2, 1 to 2. It says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And during the, the reign of King Herod, about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 9. I'm going to read 9 through 11. It says, after this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, when you follow the timeline of the Bible, what you find is no one knows for sure whether they were actually in Bethlehem, even though the star led them there. We don't know for certain that's where they, they, they were because that could have been the path that they took or they could have actually been in Nazareth because when we follow the timeline of the Christmas story, all the nativity scenes that we have all set up throughout our whole lives that have the wise men there with Jesus in the manger, it's not really accurate. Because the wise men didn't come to Jesus until probably he was a couple of years old when you follow the timeline of the text. It's convenient to put them all together, right? This is where we talk about at some point, you're understanding the Bible has to go past vacation Bible school and veggie tales. You with me? It's okay to simplify it for children, but we're not supposed to stay there for our entire lives. At some point, we're supposed to understand how it really played out and how it really happened. And this is important here because 
what, what, we, what we see is that when the Magi showed up for Mary and Joseph, Jesus is probably a toddler, whether he's in Bethlehem or whether they had relocated back to Nazareth. What we know is that these Magi, they came from a faraway place. It probably took them two years to travel from where they were to get to where they are. Two years. Come on. Two years. The prevailing views are that they either came from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, or Sheba, which would be modern-day Yemen. Regardless, both of those would have taken a two-year journey. Many, many people believe that the reason why they were even knowledgeable of the idea of the Messiah was because of Daniel. Let's go back hundreds of years when the Israelites were taken away into captivity. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that whole story, all of that is when they were there in Babylon, they would have been teaching all of the people about their beliefs. And here, hundreds of years later, how powerful is that? Do you think God didn't know all this was going to... Right? He's weaving it all together. He, he set into motion a story about the Messiah that has now passed down from generation to generation to generation in pagan families to the point where these wise men, these men that study the stars, they were astronomers, that, that, that now they're spending their lives looking for this sign, having been familiar with the prophecies of the Jewish Bible. Come on. And not only did they know about it, not only did they believe in it, they risk all that they had to go on this two-year journey. Two years traveling through dangerous places to see Jesus, to worship him. These would have been men of indescribable wealth, indescribable wealth. They would have been regaled in the, in, in, in the finest clothes, can you imagine whether it was in Bethlehem or Nazareth, these men, we, we say three, we don't know there were three. People say three because there were three gifts. There, there could have been less than three or more than three, but there were three gifts, so people assume there might have been three, but we don't know, but we know it was, it was more than one because Magi is plural. There is a group of men walking through this town that do not look like they belong there. And before they find Mary and Joseph and Jesus, we know from reading the story that they had actually been with Herod himself. They had an audience with the king. People did not get audiences with kings easily. These are influential people. Matthew 2, 11, the first part of that verse. Listen to what it says. They entered the house. Come on. They entered the house. You and I have a responsibility to enter the house. I think one of the reasons why this story is given to us because sometimes entering the house is hard. It's not easy to get there. Even before COVID, life could be difficult. And it's hard to get to the house to enter it. But we're supposed to enter the house. We're supposed to be 
tangibly present for other people, with other people. This is by God's design. Part of this series is to challenge you to to shake out of the complacency that maybe you have been in where it's been easier for you to stay in a faraway place and to worship Jesus from afar because coming here every week after maybe you've not been here for a couple of years feels like a two-year journey from Iran to Nazareth on a camel. But you know what God says to us? Jesus is worth the trip. And the part of the story that is so inspiring to me is that when we read it, is that here are Mary and Joseph again. The shepherds. Before that, the angels. Then in the temple courts, there's Anna and Simeon. And I love how this is a few years down the road. I love how God delayed it. It's not like the Magi got lost and jacked up the timetable that God had planned. No, no, no. This is all part of the design. Why is it part of the design? Because I think God wanted there to be some space between all of the dramatic supernatural things that happened surrounding Jesus' birth, I think he wanted them to go through some time where they would have to wrestle with their own human doubts and questions. Maybe Maybe he is just a regular kid. Maybe all of those things, maybe we... Maybe they weren't what we thought they were. Isn't it awesome? Because now they're just living like any other family. And then all of a sudden, this group of men who deserve audiences with kings, dressed in the finest clothes that were probably worth more than everything that everybody in that community owned combined together, carrying treasures, looking for this child. And then when they get there, Come on, you don't think they weren't nosy neighbors 2,000 years ago? Stop it already. What if this showed up at your house, found your kids in the front yard, and people started bowing and worshiping them? You don't think that's not going to be on the next door app? You don't think people are going to be snapping pictures and putting that on Facebook and Instagram and everything else? Now, they didn't have that back then, but they had what I had growing up, which is just called the rumor mill. We just talk about it. You don't think that the word spread throughout that town, what was happening? Stop it. They worshiped Jesus like he was a God because he is. One of the reasons why you and I are supposed to enter into the house is because our worship, our visible public praise is supposed to be an encouragement to other people who maybe they're beginning to question whether or not things that God has said to them are going to happen. Maybe they're doubting because of their circumstance, because of their struggle, because of their trouble. Is the praise for Jesus? Of course it is. And you know we believe that. But it's not just for Jesus. It's supposed to be for other people too. 
If that praise was just for Jesus and nobody else, it wouldn't have been in such a public demonstration. This idea of entering the house that was in a community, that was in a neighborhood where people were present is a prophetic picture of the local church. Will, will you resolve in your heart that you have a praise that you're supposed to bring to Jesus because he deserves it, but also for people because they need it. They need the encouragement that your worship, people in here looking around and seeing the expression on your face of awe as you stand before your Savior. I'm telling you, it ministers to people's hearts. And when you're in the house, I would encourage you every so often during the worship set, you should just stop and look around. Because you might need some encouragement that you didn't even know that you needed. And when you see other people, that's one of the reasons why sometimes God prompts people to come down and kneel at this altar or come stand here. Sometimes they don't even know why they're here. I'll tell you why sometimes they're here, because somebody needs to see their worship. Not, not where that we're being braggadocious or being public or saying, look at me. That's not what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about having a magi moment where you let your worship be a witness to other people and the declaration of your praise encourages their heart just like it did for Mary and Joseph 2,000 years ago. Your service is supposed to remind people that Jesus died to serve us. Your worship is supposed to remind people that everything they believe about Jesus is true and every promise that he's made to them will be kept. And the last one is this, is your generosity. Somebody say your generosity. Verses nine to 11 says, after this, the wise men went their way. This again, after he, they left Herod, and the star that they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem, and it went on ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house. Come on, I hope you never read that verse ever the same again. They entered the house. We are a house-entering church, people. They saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down, and they worshiped him. Listen, listen to this. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Whew. This is another sermon for another time, but one of the reasons why, this was a lifetime of wealth right here that was bestowed upon them based on their status in life. And it made it possible when Herod gave the edict for all the children to be killed, again, another story for another time, these riches are what made it possible for his family to escape to Egypt and live there until it was safe for them to come home. God always provides for his people. He always provides for his people. But these gifts weren't just to keep him safe. These gifts were a prophetic declaration for who Jesus is. Some of you have heard these many times. The gold represents his royalty. Jesus is the king of kings. The king of kings. Gold was a gift that was reserved for kings. And they bring this gift because they believed that Jesus was going to be the king of the Jews. 
Frankincense, which was a spice that was burned like incense in spiritual ceremonies. They're giving this gift because Jesus is our great high priest. Each one of these gifts represents something of who Jesus is to us. He is our king. He is our priest. And then the myrrh, I'm just going to tell you, is not the gift that you're supposed to give children. Because myrrh was used exclusively for embalming dead bodies. I'm just saying. It's not what you want to show up with at the next baby shower you go to. It's, it's inappropriate to give this kind of gift. It would be now and it was then. But they weren't worried about what was appropriate and what was not appropriate. Because what we understand is that the Holy Spirit had already spoken to them about what they were supposed to bring. And the reason why myrrh was laid at his feet because he was going to be a suffering savior that died for the sins of the world. All of these gifts in this one moment, as they laid them down, spoke of the life and the ministry and the identity of Christ and who he was going to be for each of us. I think these gifts are important for many reasons. But one is it's to remind us that you and I, through the material possessions that we have, there is a portion that we're supposed to set aside for the work of God's kingdom. Everything that God has given to us is not supposed to be for our own personal consumption. You've heard me say many times in the Lord's Prayer where it says, give us this day our daily bread. We're not supposed to eat the whole loaf. There are supposed to be slices that are set aside for others. Part of your budget should be for generosity, and the definition of biblical generosity crosses the threshold of sacrifice. If it's not sacrificial, if you're not giving sacrificially, meaning, meaning, that when you look at what you're giving, if that giving does not cause your standard of living to be less, then I would say you've not crossed the threshold of sacrificial giving. That's a great measure. I think that's what we believe and teach another sermon for another time. I believe that tithing is biblical and for today. Been tithing my whole Christian life. My whole Christian life. Because I believe that's part of the loaf that's supposed to be set aside that we give to the local church that we call home. Can, can we just agree that if everybody believes that tithing is biblical, if they did, the Christian church around the world could change the world in a year. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And why don't we give? Well, let's go back to Herod's temple. It doesn't accommodate our preferences. One of the reasons why you and I need to enter into this practice of sacrificial giving is because your humanity needs to be reminded, my humanity needs to be reminded that I am not my own, I belong to him, and everything that I have is his, and he's entrusted me to steward it on his behalf. And I think one of the reasons why we're supposed to live and practice this idea of sacrificial giving 
which is what we see these magi doing in this moment, the amount of wealth that they gave in that moment, is that you and I, every time we give, it's us saying to our humanity that Jesus is my king. It's us saying to our humanity, self, we're not going to do everything that you want to do. We're not going to have everything that you would like to have. Christian living is me saying to myself, I'm willing to have a little bit less so somebody else can have just enough. Every time we give, it's us saying, I believe that Jesus is my priest and he's making intercessions for me. Every time I gift, I give, it's, it's me saying, it's me saying, I believe that Jesus died for me. It's me setting aside a portion of what I have and laying it at Jesus' feet. And can we just agree, if Jesus wants you to have that back, he's going to find a way to give it to you in some other way. Right? If what he asks us to give, if you think about it and you're thinking, I'm not sure I can let go of this, I think maybe that God wants me to have it. Maybe he does, but he's going to find another way to give it to you. It's not supposed to be by withholding what this book says that we're supposed to give. You and I have to decide whether or not we're going to have a Magi moment. As a family, we have a Magi moment every month where we give to this church that we call home, where we give to special offerings, where we give to missions. It's slices of the loaf that he's given to us that we've made a lifetime of practice of giving away. And I, can I just tell you, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. One of the ways that we declare what we believe about Jesus is through the gifts that we give to fulfill the vision of building his church. I'm going to invite the keys to come back up. If Jesus fit into humanity, then you and I can certainly try to fit into the lifestyle that he wants us to have. We shared this two weeks ago, a lifestyle defined by incarnational living, being tangibly present for one another in the family of God. It's one thing to make a vow of devotion to Christ, and when we do that, heaven is promised to us. It's something completely different to step into a life of discipleship where we begin to endeavor to live like him, like him, and being tangibly present with other people is one of the ways that we do it. I'm gonna read this story to you and then we're gonna close in just a moment. It was in December of 1903. Dial that clock back. Travel back in time with me. December of 1903. And after many attempts, the Wright brothers, Orville and Wilbur, were successful in getting their flying machine, in quotes, off the ground. Because people, they didn't even know what it was. This idea of an airplane, it's a flying machine off the ground, into the air at Kill Devil Hills in the Outer Banks, right? Just down the street from here. Come on. You've never been to the Wright Brothers Monument down there. Make a day trip down there. It's fascinating. Thrilled over the accomplishment, they telegraphed this message to their sister, Catherine. We have actually flown 120 feet, and we will be home for Christmas. Catherine, this is a true story. 
hurried to the editor of the local newspaper and showed him the message, right? She's going to show him the message, not because her brothers are coming home for Christmas, but because they've flown 120 feet in a flying machine that they built. He glanced at it and he said, how nice. The boys are going to be home for Christmas this year. He totally missed the big news that travel would be forever changed for all humanity. Stand with me. I share that story with you because there's going to be a lot of things that are happening in our schedules and in our lives over this next week. Gift exchanges, work parties, Christmas Eve service here, four o'clock. Lots of things that are going to fill our days and occupy our time. But, but, but just, just, just make sure, just make sure that you don't lose sight of the true meaning of Christmas. Don't, don't be like that editor and, and miss the more significant moment that Jesus came for you, for you to die for our sins, raised to life, the promise of his return, the hope of heaven for you and I. Come on. I I hope that during this Christmas season, find a quiet moment. Find a quiet moment. Find a quiet moment by yourself and reflect on the true meaning of Christmas. Father, I pray for every person that's here. For whatever this service was supposed to mean for them, for the people that are watching online, for whatever this service was supposed to mean for them, whether it was supposed to convict them for some change that needs to come, or maybe it was a service that affirmed them because they're already here. Whether it was a, a service that, that challenged them for change that they need to make or whether it was a time of affirmation for the change that they've already pressed through. Jesus finding us here at the City Life Church, a people that have an appetite for discipleship. That that we would not just take this precious treasure of the gift of your salvation for granted. That we would always see the image of you on the cross taking our place the miracle of the stone rolled away in that empty tomb and you raised to life showing us what we're supposed to know dying to self being raised to life being reconciled to the Father and I pray that that for some people here God that this, this Christmas is going to be the birth of resolve in their heart Jesus, in the same way that you were born into this world 2,000 years ago, I pray even now, supernaturally, that resolve is going to be birthed into the hearts of people, even as they hear me pray. 
whether they're in this room or whether they're at home, that resolve is going to be birthed in people's hearts. That the belief in the incarnation isn't just going to be a Christian doctrine that they embrace, but it's going to be a lifestyle they begin to practice. Tangibly present with one another. In Jesus' name, come on and everybody said together, amen.